0: So we are in this series called Doubting God, and we're interacting with these really difficult and hard questions that every one of us have had in our life, if we're being honest with ourselves. Now, maybe some of us have moved past that point in faith where we've answered these questions, but many of us know that we still have them. Not only that, we interact with people all the time that have these difficult questions that we can't always have the answer to right away, right? And I mean, if if we learned in week one that our doubts don't disqualify our faith, that just because we have doubts does not mean that we don't have faith. That's not how that works. And we see that with the Apostle Thomas, and we studied that the week one. So if you haven't seen that or haven't heard that, go back and listen to the podcast. If you were not able to make it, it kind of builds on one another. So we see the Apostle Thomas And he had doubts, and his doubts didn't disqualify his faith. Because as we learned, he goes on, preaches the gospel, preaches Jesus for years, and plants churches. Pretty successful, and I would say his faith didn't didn't falter very much. Then, last week, we learned about Peter. And we learned about Peter. The best part we learned about Peter, he's a screw-up, right? Like, I mean, that's what we learned last week. He consistently got it wrong. Last week, we learned that Peter went from the rock at which I will build my church to get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me in less than a minute. He literally goes from the rock I'll build my church to get behind me, Satan, you've become a stumbling block to me. So last week we learned that our failures, our failures don't disqualify our faith. Because Peter, after he failed, and he failed big time because he denied Jesus three, first of all, cut a guy's ear off in the Garden of Gethsemane, which I don't know about you, But after everything I know about Jesus, I'm not cutting anybody's ear off at the Garden of Gethsemane, probably not. Peter still didn't understand. He wasn't going to let them arrest Jesus, so he cut this guard's ear off. And then after that, all of a sudden, he lost all of his zeal for Jesus, and he denied Jesus three times when a high school teenager came up and asked him, don't you know Jesus? He said, no, I don't know him at all. He failed consistently. And then after that, Jesus restored him on the beach when he was eating breakfast and everybody thinks that's where Peter's story ends but it's not because he failed again when he tried to say no no no, this Jesus thing is only for the Jews and God and Jesus said no you've got it wrong it's not just for the Jews it's for the Gentiles it's for the entire world so we learned last week that our failures because we all have them Right? We all have failures. We all have moments when we feel like we failed God. Right? I can give you, I mean, you, you've probably gone to counseling for those times that you felt like you've, you failed God. I know I have. And there's things that we have dealt with. But we learned last week and encouraged that just our failures does, do not, does not mean that we don't have faith. It means we are in the process of faith. And as we learned, our faith is a journey from point A to point B. And we never fully arrive. Now, the topic today is going to make some of you a little bit uncomfortable, and I just want to tell you that up front. If you've been part of church for any amount of time, what I'm going to say might make you a little uncomfortable. As we get started, you're, you might look around and go, honey, what, is exact, what exactly is going on here? And I'm going to ask that you trust me for just a moment as we begin to talk about the topic hand today. If you're not a Jesus follower or you're considering it, this might come as a great relief to you. So today I want to talk about this book, not necessarily the stories in it. You guys hear that every Sunday from me. I want to talk about how we got this book. In fact, I want to answer a question today about this book, because many times people stay with me, put their faith in this book. And for many of you, you're like, absolutely, Pastor, that's the Sunday school answer. Yes, the Bible tells me so, right? And for many of us, that's, how, that's the version of faith that we were handed when we were kids, that this is the Bible. And unfortunately, unfortunately, what ends up happening is Christians place their faith on the Bible instead of on Christ, The Holy Trinity, and I'm going to get in your grill for just a second, for some Christians, nobody in here, but for some Christians, the Trinity becomes the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible, and not the Holy Spirit. What if I told you that Christianity existed for 400 years before this book ever did? Christianity filled with the Spirit, healings, miracles. The church has never seen an expansion like it did in the first 300 years without this book. Now this book is important. This book is inspired. This book is the Word of God. But this book is not the basis of your faith. The basis of your faith, if you're a Jesus follower, your basis of your faith is in Christ. And I'm going to explain that a little bit more. But we're going to ask the question today that maybe you've never been able to ask before. Maybe you were too afraid to ask in your home dynamic or in your home church dynamic, or your family dynamic, or you've never even just been, hey, man, I don't want to ask that question, because if I ask that question, then maybe I have doubts, and then God doesn't love me. We're going to ask the question, can I trust this book? Can I trust this book? Because ultimately, what does this book tell us? It tells us the story of Jesus. Our faith is not built on this book, but this book tells us about Jesus. It tells us about what our faith is built on. So it is important, and we have to read it every day, and we have to pay attention to the things that are in it. But can we trust it? And again, if you've been in church any amount of time, you come into church and you go, why is the pastor asking if we can trust the Bible? The answer is yes. I don't know why he's asking these questions. And the truth is because more and more in society, this book is discredited. More and more in society, this book is looked at as a fairy tale. In fact, on a popular podcast, you guys may know of it, it's the Joe Rogan podcast, he was interviewing somebody who had been totally mistreated by the church because of their sexual orientation, and they'd been totally mistreated and hated by the church because the church wasn't behaving like the church. And he said, when related to the Bible, he said, I don't believe in fairy tales. That's the biggest podcast in the entire world. That's what the things that are being said about this book. So I want to ask the question, because when you get to college, and if you haven't been to college already, or you get into the secular school system and things like that, especially if you're a teenager or a high schooler, they're going to say things about this book that may not be true. They're going to pass things about this book that they guarantee are, are, are facts, but they're really just theories. So we're going to ask the question today, can I trust this book. That's what I want to work through today. In order to get there, we're not going to start in the beginning in Genesis, because that doesn't tell us the story of the Bible. We are actually going to start kind of right in the middle with the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 1.1, Luke records the doctor. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. I want to stop for just a second. Many doesn't make sense in the ancient world. Not a lot of people knew how to write. Not a lot of people were capable of doing those things. And the fact that many people, many people by the time Luke is writing his gospel, have tried to write something about Jesus tells us that something was special about Jesus. There is no reason why they would write that much about him. And here's the other part. Why would they even write about Jesus if he was just crucified and died and nothing else happened? If nothing else happened, he's a dead wannabe Messiah. I mean, let's be honest. If nothing else significant happened and he was just crucified and they pulled his body down, threw him in the tomb, and that was the end of the story, then there would be no church today. There would be no reason for many accounts. There would be no reason for Luke to even continue his account. Nobody would wonder or be concerned about it. Not only that, not everybody knew how to write. It wasn't like today. It wasn't like today where you can just have a viewpoint on something and then you write a book, you self-publish it, and then you're famous, or you write a book and then you you self-publish it. That wasn't a thing. That didn't happen. Only highly educated individuals knew how to read and knew how to write. And so Luke tells us many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from eyewitnesses the servants of the word, eyewitnesses, meaning Luke said, I didn't get it from a second, third, fourth, fifth person. I went to the disciples who saw with their eyes the risen Christ. That's what Luke is saying. I saw them, I interacted with them, I asked them questions, I asked them the questions that you would ask them. I was concerned and I wanted to know, did Jesus really do this? Tell me about the life of Jesus. That's what Luke is trying to say. He said, with this in mind, Since I myself have carefully investigated, not took on faith, carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know with the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Theophilus was a Greek aristocrat who was associated with the doctor Luke. He became a Christian, but like all normal people, he had doubts. He had questions, and when he had doubts and questions, he engages Luke, and Luke says, you know what, I'm going to thoroughly investigate all of this. We're going to go to town. We're going to figure out what exactly was being said and what exactly happened. Now, it's important to note, Luke was not writing this book. God was, but Luke was not. Luke had no idea. Luke was a human. God's hand was moving his and involved, and it was inspired by the Spirit. But Luke had no idea what he was writing when he was writing his gospel. Luke thought he was writing an account to the most excellent Theophilus. He thought him and Theo were, that was all who the letter was for. But then that letter got circulated and got passed around multiple, multiple times all over the place. Because again, if Jesus didn't do what Jesus said he did or wasn't who he says he was, he's, it's just another wannabe messiah but we know that something different happened and luke doesn't just record the life of jesus luke actually continues his writing and records the book of acts or as some of you guys have in your bibles it's called the acts of the apostles and he continues to write for theophilus because he wants to know theophilus wants to know hey luke what happened how did we get the church how did i get somebody come up and witnessing jesus to me What on earth happened in that space? So Luke continues writing in the book of Acts. And he continues to write. And Luke records what Peter says on the day of Pentecost in the first sermon. So after Jesus has ascended and risen to heaven, Luke records what Peter has to say about the entire situation. Remember, Peter, he doubted Jesus He walked on water, doubted Jesus, almost drowned. Jesus saved him, denied Jesus three times. Peter, who was afraid to talk about Jesus to a teenage girl. Peter is now saying this to thousands of people in Jerusalem. Fellow Israelites, he says, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. Meaning Jesus didn't show up and say, believe me, I'm the Messiah, and then nothing happened. Jesus said, believe me, I'm the Messiah, get up and walk. Jesus said, believe me, I'm the Messiah, and then rose a person from the dead a few times. Jesus says, I am the Messiah, and then walked on water. And Luke records those things. And so Peter turns to the crowd and says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know, as you yourselves know. You experienced it. Peter was not afraid to say to this large crowd, you have heard of Jesus of Nazareth. You have heard of the miracles that he's done. You've experienced, some of you have probably experienced the miracles that he did and the miracles of his ministry. And he continues, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. A lot of theological implications there. I'd love to talk about it. Now's not the time. And you, with help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from death and agony because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Somebody say amen in the house this morning. Now, I want to stop just for a second and say if that didn't happen in front of a giant crowd, why do we not have any records saying different? Why don't we have any reliable records from this time frame saying that that's not what happened? Because even the, the, Jewish, uh, the, the Jewish Josephus, he comes in and says, yeah, no, Jesus, he had some things, and there was some, he did some really amazing things. And then Josephus says, even people say they saw him. Josephus is like, I didn't see him. But there's a lot of people that say they saw him after he was crucified. So, but what we don't have, why don't we have records from the temple? I mean, Jesus was a big problem for the Pharisees, if you remember. He actually really made them mad all the time. It was his favorite thing to do, I think, was free people from sin and then make the religious leaders mad. It was his favorite thing. So, why wouldn't the temple put together something like this if they could? In fact, why wouldn't Rome? Better yet, why didn't they just produce the body? I mean, let's be honest, if, if they could just produce the body, then that's the end of the conversation, right? I mean, because, and then they're like, well, the, the, the apostles stole the body. Do you understand how much it would take with a well-guarded Roman tomb for 13 fishermen to steal the body of Christ? That would be difficult. That would almost be impossible. What if they hallucinated 500 of them? I don't think so. That doesn't sound plausible. In fact, we have no other evidence in history that anything like that's ever happened. The scientific evidence that there's been a mass uh, hallucination like that. So the only logical explanation is what Peter says next in his, in his sermon. God has raised Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Peter says it. Luke writes it down. We saw it. We saw it happen. We experienced it. We know that it was Jesus. We had lunch or we had breakfast with him on the beach. But remember, the church is expanding in Acts. Thousands were saved that day when Peter finishes his sermon. And it says that they were cut to the heart by this truth. And then thousands were saved that day. This doesn't exist yet. This isn't even a thought. In fact, at that point, they don't even have written down records of what happened with Jesus because it happened like 50 days ago. It's, It's different. So we have absolutely no record of the Bible just yet, but the Holy Spirit is moving in power. And then Luke continues to document what happens next where churches are planted and Luke doesn't even recognize it. And this is the amazing thing about God is he's writing the Bible and Luke has no idea that he's writing the Bible. Like Luke is just, he's along for the ride, and next thing you know, he's writing the Bible. And he would never see it become the Bible. He would never see it become this document that is freeing for so many people. He would never see it become the Word of God. He would never see it become any of those things. But this is the amazing part. Not only do we have Luke, not only do we have Luke, we also have the book of Mark, which is the fisherman's account. The fisherman's account of the life of Jesus. That's why if you read Mark, it's like very fast-paced, because I think Peter probably had ADHD, so he needed to go to the next thing, right? That's that's why I like Peter, because he was like on to the next one. He just, big, the gospel of Mark is there just to tell you Jesus was the Messiah. Here's all the reasons why. Then you have the book of Matthew. Matthew, who was a Jewish tax collector who leveraged the Old Testament passages and he leveraged tons of Old Testament. If you notice when you read Matthew, there's tons of Old Testament stuff from Isaiah and the other prophets where you're like, what does that mean? Well, it was written to a Jewish audience. So for those of us that aren't, that aren't versed in that, it's lost on us from time to time. But Matthew was writing it because he wanted the Jews to see that he was the Messiah that was promised to the world. So we have Matthew. And then we have John, who wrote his book in the old age. Remember, this wasn't a book then. John was writing. It was just his experiences with Jesus, okay? Just his experiences with Jesus. And he writes it nearly around 90 A.D. So Jesus was crucified around 35 A.D. So we're about 60 years past that, and he's writing. And for those of you that say, wow, that's a long time. That's not a long time in in history. And those of you that have taught history or study history, you know that some of the things we have are not from primary sources. Most of the things we have are from secondary or tertiary sources, which is, I talked to the guy that experienced the thing, that said the guy that did this, and then, hey, Alexander the Great. That's, That's how we have a lot of our history today. But that's not how we have the Bible today. That's not even close to how we have the Bible. John... John begins to write, and and the question is, John, why would you write yours? I mean, all the others, the other three had been written by this point. John, why on earth did you write your gospel? That doesn't make any sense. Well, luckily for us, John tells us why at the end of his gospel. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not recorded in this book. He doesn't mean this book. They're probably not all recorded in this book either, because Later in just the next chapter, John says, if we wrote everything down, there wouldn't be enough books on earth to to record it, everything that Jesus did. But when John was writing, he wasn't writing this book. This book didn't exist. He was just writing his account. He was writing his experiences. Hey, I've said a lot of things, John would say, that aren't recorded, or that I've experienced a lot of things that aren't recorded in here. But this is why I wrote, John says, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why this was written. Multiple writings, multiple copies. It's another way we know that it was a valuable text. And people that sit back and go, well, we didn't have the Bible. You're going to hear this in a deconstruction movement a little bit. We didn't have the Bible and it was moved around. And how do we know that what we had was accepted when they actually put it together in in 397? Well, we know primarily because... The, the documents were passed around from the earliest time. So the gospel and pieces and fragments of the gospel of Mark was passed around from the earliest time. The same thing is true of Matthew. The same thing is true of the letters of Paul. The same thing is true of the letters of John. The same thing is true of the letter of Peter. Those things were passed around multiple times by the early church. And the early church said, yeah, I've met with Peter and he said these things. That's why we believe that this document, and the early church that had, had met John said, yeah, John wrote these things down. He told us about it. In fact, he was just here and then he got, he tried to get martyred for it and they tried to boil him alive. Then they go, yeah, no, no, no. This, this is what Matthew said because he experienced it. And then he came and talked to us about it. It was amazing. This is what was actually written. This is what we know. So that argument doesn't hold a lot of water, honestly, inside of the educated circles that actually know the New Testament documents. In fact, many atheist scholars will acknowledge and believe that the New Testament documents are true, except for the part about Jesus raising from the dead. That one's a hard one. I understand. It was a hard one for me, too. It was a hard one for Paul. Paul was killing Christians. That's how hard it was for him. It was a hard one for them. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. There are no miracles. That's what the viewpoint is. But everything else in the New Testament, hey, that... Those pretty accurate historical documents, they would say. So I say all this because the New Testament, the New Testament is a reliable document full of great life-building, faith-building, stories, explanations, guidelines for the for the church, guidelines for our life, outplays of what Jesus talked about. Paul. Paul plays out a couple different things that Jesus talks about and clarifies it for the churches because they were misbehaving. So you can take heart in that the New Testament is trustworthy. The New Testament is reliable. Some of you are going to go, okay, what about the other half? There's a whole other half you ain't talking about, Pastor, what's going on there? Do you not believe in it? No, I do. I absolutely do. But I want to look at it differently because it was written differently by different people with a different purpose. In fact, the Old Testament has many different authors. The Old Testament spans a large amount of time, far larger than the New Testament. In fact, the Old Testament was called the Law and the Prophets back in the day. <clears throat> this, the Old Testament still constitutes the Jewish texts. And the only reason we even have the Old Testament is because when they started to figure out, when the New Testament church started to figure out that Jesus was talking about Yahweh, the God of the Jews, when he said, yeah, I'm, he's my father and this is what happened, when they started to piece that together, they said, hold on a second, we need that document. We need to figure out what's going on. So they pulled all that stuff over and that's how we get that added to our Bible or as it first became to Biblia. But Brandon, what about the Old Testament? Is it reliable? Is it, can, we, can we even trust anything that's in there? Well, I don't have time to go through all the different books of the Old Testament because that is a much bigger task than what I just did with the New Testament. It spans a long time, lots of different things. We've got prophecies that are fulfilled in that. We've got poetry writings. We've got, Proverbs. We've got a lot of things to cover if we were going to go piece by piece through that. So I would like to start... In the beginning, I would like to start in the beginning with Genesis, because Genesis is always the one that people look at and they go, not true, totally copied from all the other religions. And while you may have heard that in in college, and I heard it in college for a little bit too, Brandon, it's 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 not special. Genesis is just copied from the other ancient Near East experiences. But I'm here to tell you something different. Let's actually take a look at it. So the beginning of Genesis starts in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Now, while other cosmologies, because that's what we're going to get into, and don't glaze over on me because I'm going to start talking about stuff, you guys are going to be like, look, I don't care. Tell me that my faith is great and I'm comfortable with it, but you need to stay with me for just a second, okay? Because... These ancient cosmologies and other ancient societies had things in common with the biblical narrative. That's true. But of course they did. Our current New Testament writings had things in common with Greek writing. Any book you pick up today is going to have things in common with the books that it was written in with, the time frame that it was written with. You pick something up from 1940, it's going to have things in common with 1940 books. That's how it works. Culture helps dictate what's written and what's written down, and how, more importantly, how things are communicated, right? So I don't know what the books are going to be when this generation writes, but it's going to have a lot of slang words in it. That's all I know, okay? That's all I know. None of us are going to be able to read it, and we're going to need a translator, but it's going to be great. I can't wait. So... There is a theme that you're going to see in these other ancient Near East religions. Of course there is, because they're using the same language and they're using things that they understand to describe what they understand and how God created the world. Now, maybe you're sitting back and you go, hold on, Brandon, I've heard that the Egyptian narrative is, creation narrative is the same as the Genesis creation narrative. Well, hold on a second. In order to do that, we have to look at it. Because the Egyptian creation narrative starts with the God Atum, okay, the god Atum, was uncre- he was not uncreated, okay? The god Atum created himself out of nothing, out of, crazy, uh, out of the chaotic waters of the time, and then Atum not only did that, but he set everything into motion after that. So he self-created himself out of the chaotic waters. He was not eternally preexistent like Yahweh, our God, not like how we understand God today. So that doesn't match up, that really doesn't match up hardly at all, because then it becomes a form of pantheism, which we don't have that either. And the big one that a lot of you guys have probably heard of in college is, well, hold on, Brandon, what about the Babylonian, the Babylonian viewpoint, the Enuma Elish, what about that one? Well, that's a fun story to read if you haven't heard it at all. And and see, the thing is, it doesn't match up exactly with Genesis. So let's take a look at the Enuma Elish for just a second. The Numa Elish starts with the evil chaos water dragon, Tiamat, and the god of the Babylonians is Marduk. Now, Tiamat starts eating humans and destroying kind of everything and starts eating gods and stuff, so Marduk comes out and says, well, we got to stop that. So Marduk, the Babylonian god, he brings the four winds, so the north, south, east, and west, the four compass winds. He brings the four winds, and he starts a war with Tiamat. And as, they're fighting with T- as he's fighting with Tiamat, Tiamat, the chaos dragon, gets wrapped up by, these, by the winds that Marduk controls. And then Marduk runs after her with his chariot, led by the horse's slaughterer and devourer sounds like the bible and then he gets close and as he gets close he throws the net on top of him on top of tiamat and then circles back around with his uh, with his chariot and then tiamat the chaos water dragon opens her mouth and what he does then instead is he takes the four winds that were wrapped around her throws them down her throat just like in the Bible, and then it goes down into her stomach, swells her up, and then the, fi- the finale is when he, Marduk, takes a bow and arrow of a long javelin and launches it from his bow into her mouth, into her stomach, explodes Tiamat's stomach, and then he takes the top half of Tiamat and creates the heavens. He takes the bottom half and creates the world. Babylonian Sunday school was lit. That's all I'm saying. That would be fun. That would be, that would be fun. And then out of her mouth, out of Tiamat's mouth, because he took the bottom half and the top half, and the way he split her up, out of her nostrils flowed the Tigris and Euphrates River, which, which created the, the, uh, the beginning of, of life as we know. That sounds a lot like the Bible. Genesis borrowed some language borrowed some language. Not the story. The story was original. The story that a loving God comes down and creates creation and all He does is create creation out of His words. Not only that, but He didn't create humans to be slaves to Him, which is very common in these other beliefs. That's not true. God created humans to be with Him. Not enslaved to him. And and Genesis brought an entirely different worldview and cosmology to the world <clears throat> when it was introduced. And it was groundbreaking then, which is why so many people had issues with the Israelites, was because what they were talking about and the things they were teaching made them uncomfortable. And in fact, modern scientific community wouldn't catch up with Genesis 1-1 until around 1927 when a Catholic priest came up with the Big Bang Theory. The Catholic, a Catholic priest, a Catholic Belgian priest, <clears throat> came up, George Lametiere, came up with the Big Bang Theory. And then it wasn't until, the, until 1964 when they discovered the cosmic background radiation, if you've ever heard of that before in college, the cosmic background radiation that showed that it had, that the universe had a beginning, a start point, and that it showed when they were able to track it, because that's how they measure it, that the universe started in the matter of a couple trillions of a second, expanded rapidly for no explanation at all, and then continued to expand today. And it expanded from something that maybe started at the form of a pebble at the best guess because that's the smallest form that they can measure the cosmic background of microwave radiation. But at the end of the day, the Big Bang Theory says a whole lot like this. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Genesis did not copy the stories. Genesis borrowed the language because it's what they used to describe things that they understood. The story that God created the world, the way he created the world, is true. Science has shown that the universe was not always existing, which was the preeminent view, until they found all these it's also stuff you're not going to hear much talked about in your science class at school. You go, okay, Brandon, that's, that's great. I stayed awake the whole time. Well, if you did, I'm so proud of you. But what does it all mean? What does that even mean? I mean, come on, what, is it, what, what are you trying to say? Like, yeah, okay, so, so Babylonian Sunday school was cool right? It doesn't sound anything like what we have in the Bible, borrowed some language with chaotic waters and things like that, but I mean, what does it even mean? It means that both the New and the Old Testament can be trusted and relied upon as the story of God. Your faith is built on Jesus, and people have been trying to disprove that he rose from the dead for thousands of years and they have yet to been able to do it. In fact, many people that have gone on the excursion of doing that have actually found faith and found belief that what was written in here actually did happen. That together we get the written word, inspired word of God. Your faith is not built on it. Your faith is not built on it. Your faith is built on Christ, but this builds up your faith. It's useful, it's a tool, it's why God gave it to us, was so that it, we could use it to build our faith. In the Old Testament, we learn about God's character. We learn about paradise lost, and God constantly pursuing humanity from that point. In the New Testament, we learn and we see Jesus establish the kingdom of heaven, and the <clears throat> kingdom ethics established with it, that Man and woman and everybody is all created equal, which was an Old Testament concept. And Jesus affirms that concept and he brings it even closer and says, not only that, all these people you have problems with, you got to actually love those people. you got to care for those people. And it's by this everyone will know that you are my disciples. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, handing humanity restoration with the Father which hadn't been done up to that point. And we see the apostles leading the gathering of Jesus' followers as his Holy Spirit's poured out on the early church. In the Bible, we see the love of God poured out on the world. So to answer the question, is this reliable? Can I trust it? I think the answer is yes. Because it shows the story of God from paradise lost to paradise found. So, as we bring it in for a landing here, the point of this entire conversation here today is I want you to know you can have faith in the words that you're reading in this book. And maybe, maybe, maybe you were a little afraid when I started the message that I wasn't going to end there. But you can, and you should. And I encourage you, I've given you this challenge before. If you haven't taken, up, taken me up on it, I encourage you to do it. Just read this for five minutes a day. doesn't have to be a lot. doesn't have to be crazy. But when you begin to engage with this, and in particular in the New Testament, when you see how Paul, and first of all, how Jesus lives, and you see how the church starts in Acts, and you see how Paul handles things, you see how Peter handles things, you see how John handles things, you all of a sudden go, Oh, it makes so much more sense now why and how this happened. And I understand your doubts. I had them too. And I still struggle with them at times. But I'm able to go back and work on it. And secular education does a great job of telling you that this is a fairy tale. It is totally fake. And Jesus was just a cool guy. One guy even says Jesus was a mushroom. Don't, don't, be, don't believe that guy. Don't believe that guy. The secular, the secular world does a great job. does a great job of telling us that this isn't true and the story in this isn't true. However, I think that creation itself echoes the reality of the creator. You go outside, you can look up in the stars at night, and you can probably see the creator greater than you ever could in a classroom. So if you are one of those individuals and you struggle with these types of conversations, you struggle particularly with Genesis, because Genesis is where a lot of people go after. I've got a book that I would suggest that I've been working through that I think is, is excellent. It's called Seven Days that Divide the World. Now, it's a, it's a read. <laughs> it's a read, okay? Done by a professor of, of uh, apologetics and, and other stuff, Dr. Lennox. He's, uh, he's very intelligent in the way he lays everything out because there's multiple theories about Genesis, about the seven-day creation viewpoints, how that happened, how that worked, and he lays all those theories out, and ultimately we all come to, it comes to the same place that our faith is built on Jesus, but Genesis tells us how it started. So I would encourage you, if you struggle with those things and you're not sure what exactly, you know, you believe or you're not sure what to read and you don't know what to do, hey, I encourage you to read that book. It's very, it, it's very useful. And then I, I want you to this week, take me up on that challenge if you haven't already. Start reading this for five minutes a day. Just start. Give it a try and see if the words of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, echoing the words of Jesus, See if the words of the Apostle Paul, see if the words of Peter and John, see if they don't begin to change your life when you have an interaction with the Savior of the world. Because I would argue that you will. You give it an honest look. And engage your doubts. If this message just caused you to have a bunch more questions, amazing. Talk with me. I would love to grab coffee and talk about them more And again, we learned in week one, we're not going to know every answer, because then we would be God. So we're not going to know every answer. But I think between this and science, we have a pretty good understanding of the world and of God in the world. So, before we close, I want to invite you guys next week to not miss next week. Next week's message is going to be, can I believe both God God? In science as we bring this series into a close. So I encourage you to come next week, and I also encourage you to bring a friend who may be more of that viewpoint in the world. It's going to be a good topic for them to come. So with that, I would love to pray for you guys as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this book, Thank you that in your infinite wisdom, you recognize that we would need a record of you. That we would need it written down, and that we would need it to explain who you are. From Old Testament to New, we see you in this book. So Heavenly Father, I pray, I pray that you would build our faith if we struggle with believing what's in here. Lord, I not only pray that, I pray that you would help us engage with our questions associated with this book and our questions associated with our faith, that we wouldn't somehow think that questioning devalues our faith or removes our ability to have it and have faith in Christ. Peter doubted, Thomas doubted to the very last moment. The apostle Paul doubted until you showed yourself to them. So you're big enough to handle our doubts, Lord. Your Bible is big enough to handle our questions. Our faith isn't built on those things. It's built on Christ. So help us build our faith through your word, through everything that you tell us in it. Father, we love you. We give you all the praise this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen.